Hey everybody, welcome back. It is January 22nd and 2021. Um, we just wrapped up um, episode two and now we're moving on to three. And this one is titled simply The Cognitive Revolution. Um, so again, uh, just we're still paving that road that's going to take us into some of the fun stuff that um, I'm anxious to get into, stuff that you're looking forward to listen to. Um, you know, I know that this podcast is titled The History of Religions, but um, again, we got to really pave that road, build that foundation, understand early thinking, real early thinking. I mean, we've all seen the pictures of cavemen, you know, looking up to the sky, looking at the stars and seeing a bolt of lightning hit the ground and wonder, well, how that happened? Well, God must have done it. Well, it's not just that easy. Um, so that's why I want to um, take a clear look at what we can tell I mean, you know, there's only so much that we know about these guys, about our, you know, ancient cousins and ancestors, you know, going back, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, and as we talked about in episode two, you know, we are only humans, which was so far my, my, my favorite one. I love that one. But, you know, there were a lot of us that were just humans in different sizes, shapes, and forms, and very, very different species, as we would see with, like, bulldogs and cocker spaniels and what have you, or, you know, all the different types of bears and different types of cats. We were all humans, but yet we were a different species of humans. Um, so it's going to be interesting to take a look at the wiring that took place. You know, we talked about the nerves slowly taking change and muscles taking change even within the hand but also within the brain you know i mean the brain is a muscle the more it's being used the more you know it starts figuring things out and it literally starts to rewire itself um i mean we we, we are able to see this through just the history of um of of humanity going back as far as we can see and you know that comes with the use of fire that comes with the types of tools that were they were building the things that they were making and it gets way more intricate as we get you know a little bit early, uh, later into time so you know they look like us but their cognitive abilities their learning their remembering the way that they communicated you know it was you know it was far more limited but we can see how it changed over time. So teaching such ancient sapiens to speak English, persuading them the truth of Christian dogma, or getting them to understand the theory of evolution would probably have been a hopeless undertaking. You know, we're talking about sitting down at that campfire with Johnny and trying to explain to him about, you know, how you need to worship this Jesus or you're simply going to burn in hell. It's, it's probably just going to go right over his head. So, but then, you know, we keep talking about this number that Scientific um, scholarship seems to believe that right around the beginning of 70,000 years ago, Homo sapiens started doing a very special thing, or very special things in the plural sense. Because around that time, sapiens, sapien bands left Africa for a second time. Um, uh, the, the, around this time, they drove the Neanderthals and other human species, not only you know from the Middle East, but from the face of the earth. You know, we talked about that in episode two. Um, and we even talked about the, you know, all the way up to about, what, 10, 12,000 years ago, we were basically finally the only, the only you know, the, the only human left on the face of the earth. We killed everybody else or they died out or, you know, we talked about those different theories, those different possibilities. But within a remarkably short amount of time, a short period, sapiens reached 
Europe and they reached um, East Asia. And about 45,000 years ago, they somehow crossed the open seas of the lands into Australia, a, a continent so far, and, and so far that we know was untouched by humans at this point. But about 45,000 years ago, we definitely made that um, trip um, over to that. We, we crossed the seas at that point and understanding how that different, a lot of different theories, but we'll, we'll talk about those. But the period from about 70,000 years ago to about 30,000 years ago witnessed the invention of boats, oil lamps, bows and arrows, needles, which were essential for sewing warm clothing. The first objects that can reliably be called art date from this era. Um, for instance, um, and you'll probably have to Google and take a look at some pictures. Um, if you look at page 17 on the essay, if you're following along with this, you should be able to see some pictures. But um, the Dastato Lion Man or the Lohenmensch sculpture were two very significant pieces of art that come from this time. And you can start seeing where um, potentially we're talking about goddesses and, and, and gods and spirits, uh, where this is where it really starts getting cool. So as does the first clear evidence for religion, commerce, um, stratification, the classification of groups like the wealthy versus the poor. So, so most researchers believe that these unprecedented accomplishments were product of a revolution in sapiens' cognitive abilities, hence the title of this particular show, um, The Cognitive Revolution. So they basically maintained that people who drove the Neanderthals to extinction settled in Australia and carved the Strato Lion Man. They were as intelligent, they were creative, and sensitive as we are today. They, scientists are believing that um, these individuals were not that far different from us. Um, so this is where we really starting to see the evolution in the way that men and women were thinking. So if we're going to come across the the artists of this Stradel of this Stradel cave, we would learn we would learn their language, and we would and they would learn ours. They probably could learn ours, just like we would go out and learn Spanish. So they had that kind of cognitive ability. This is what we're starting to see. We'd be able to explain to them everything that we know, from the adventures in Wonderland to the paradoxes of the quantum physics. And they could teach us about their people who viewed the world, how they viewed the world. The appearances of new ways of thinking and communicating between 70,000 and 30,000 years ago constitutes the cognitive revolution. What caused it? I don't know. We're really not sure. You know, but there's a lot of, you know, a lot of you know, things that are giving us clues. But the most commonly believed theory argues that accidental genetic mutation changed the inner wiring of the brains of sapiens, enabling them to be able to think in unprecedented ways and to communicate using altogether new types of languages, or a new type of language, if you would. Actually, instead of grunts and groans and pointing and something that you might envision a caveman doing, you know, again, I'm being a little derogatory. I don't, I don't want to be derogatory because these humans were way more capable than that. But they were in the time and place of able to start creating a language. We might call this the tree of knowledge mutation. Why, why did it occur only in sapiens, in sapiens DNA rather than that of Neanderthals? I, I, well, I think we just chalk it up to just a matter of pure chance as, as, as far as we can tell. But this breed or this um, this classification of sapiens were able to 
over, again, we're talking over hundreds of thousands, we're talking over a million, two, two million, two and a half million years, that that wiring slowly and ultimately was able to change. But it's more important to understand the consequences of this tree of knowledge mutation than, than, than more than what it just causes. What is so special about the sapiens language that enabled to conquer the world? Now, it wasn't the first communication system because we, you know, for a fact, every animal knows how to communicate. Even insects such as bees, ants, they know how to inform one another of the whereabouts of food, of somebody's coming. Neither was it the first vocal communication system. Many animals, including apes and the monkey species, they use vocal signs. For example, green monkeys, you know, they, they use calls of various kinds to warn each other of danger. Matter of fact, as you know, zoologists have identified um, one call that means careful or hey, an eagle. A slightly different call warns careful, there's a lion. <laughs> so when researchers played a recording of the first call to a group of monkeys, the monkeys actually stopped what they were doing and looked upwards in fear. When the same group heard the recording of the second call of the lion warning, they all quickly scrambled up a tree. Holy crap! So, you know, you can only imagine. So sapiens can produce many more distinct sounds than that of a green monkey or that of a chimpanzee or that of a gorilla. But what about like whales and elephants? They have equally impressive abilities. A parrot can say anything Albert Einstein could say, as well as mimicking the sounds of a phone ringing, door slamming, and even sirens wailing. We've all fallen for that trick where we thought we heard a woman scream, screaming or somebody singing or, and it turns out that they got a, got a bird, got a canary. But whatever advantage Einstein had over the parrot, it wasn't vocal. What then is so special about our language? So, so the most common answer is that our language is amazingly supple. We can connect a limited number of sounds and signs produce an infinite number of sentences each with a distinct meaning, a distinct meaning. Excuse me, I've had too much coffee. So we can basically um, thereby ingest, store, and communicate pro pro prodigious amounts of information about the surrounding world. A green monkey call, yelling to its friends, careful, a lion! But a modern human can tell his friends that this morning, hey, near the bend by the river, I saw a lion! And what was this lion? This lion was tracking a herd of bison. You know, that's probably Johnny. You know? But he can then describe the exact location, including the different paths leading to the area. With this information, you can imagine that most members of this group can put their heads together and discuss whether they should approach the river and chase away that lion and perhaps even hunt down that bison. And then you got a second theory that agrees that the unique language evolved as a means of sharing information about the world. But the most important information that needed to be covered was, was about humans, not about lions and bisons. Our language evolved as a way of gossiping and perhaps even spreading rumors. According to this theory, Homo sapiens is primarily a social animal. Social cooperation is key for survival and reproduction. So now I want you to think about that. I mean, take, let's look at look at what we're doing right now. Look at Facebook. Look at Instagram. This is what we do. We are a gossiping species. We love it, man. If I if, if I got dirt on somebody or something, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna let it out. I I, I gotta tell somebody. 
and you can imagine you're in a village and you, you you're wondering what Johnny's doing over there with with Billy Bob the barbarian's wife or you know you're you're wondering what's going on with the uh, leader of the group and how come he's you know sneaking around into other other tents or whatever uh, obviously I'm talking crazy here but you get the idea going back this far 70,000 to 30,000 years ago it was happening we were social creatures just like we see in our data in, in our chimpanzees and, and apes and elephants and dolphins and we're social creatures man but we are able to take that that social capability that that language and really take the ball and run with it now it's not enough for individual men and women to know the whereabouts of lions and bison. It's much more important for them to know who in their group hates whom, who's sleeping with whom, who's honest, and who's a cheat. Who can you even trust? Who, 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 who are you going to buy that turtle shell helmet from? Johnny? I don't know. So the amount of information that one must obtain and store in order to track this ever-changing relationship of even a few dozen individuals, it is staggering. In a band of 50 individuals, there are what you've got to imagine that is about 1,225 one-on-one relationships and countless more complex social combinations. All apes show a keen interest in social information, but they have trouble gossiping effectively. They didn't have so have Facebook. They didn't have Instagram. They didn't have TikTok. But Neanderthals and archaic Homo sapiens probably also had a hard time talking behind their others' backs as well. But a much maligned ability, which is such a fact essential for cooperation in large numbers. The new linguistic skills that modern sapiens acquired about 70 millennia ago enabled them to gossip for hours on end, and that they simply did. Reliable information about... Who could be trusted meant small bands of people could expand into larger bands, and sapiens could develop tighter and more sophisticated types of cooperation. Now, you know, we're going to be really talking about social cooperation in the ability to gossip, gossip and, you know, com combine, start building words together. And so we can talk about these people who are sleeping together, you know, what's, what, what, what's Johnny been doing down there with... What's her name? These, these, these abilities are so important to building huge bands of groups. The gossip theory might sound like a joke to you, but numerous studies support it. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's all we got. Um, even if today, the vast majority of human, human communication, whether in the form of emails, phone calls, or newspaper columns, um, it, we talked about all the different social media. I didn't use Twitter. I guess we can use Twitter now that Trump's off of it, but it's the form of gossip. It's what it is. It comes so naturally to us that it seems like if our language evolved for this, like it had evolved for this very purpose alone. Do you think that history professors call, you know, do they chat about the reasons for World War I when they meet for lunch with their, with their friends? Or that nuclear physicist spends their coffee breaks at scientific conferences talking about quarks? Sometimes, but more often they gossip about the professor who caught their husband cheating, the quarrel between the head of the department and the dean, or the or the rumors that the colleagues that your colleague used to use his research funds to go buy a new Lexus or a Ferrari for that matter. Why not go big? But gossip usually focuses on wrongdoings. So rumor mongers are the original 
fourth estate. Journalists who inform societies about this and that and protect us from cheats and from all the freeloaders out there. Most likely, both the gossip theory and there is a lion near the river theory are all valid. Yet, the truly unique feature of our language is, is it's not its ability to transmit information about men and lions. Rather, it's the ability to transmit information about things that do not exist at all. <laughs> Let me say that again. It is rather, it is the ability to transmit information about things that do not exist at all. As far as we know, we are the only species. We are, it comes down, only sapiens can talk about entire kinds of entities that no one has ever seen, touched, or smelled. Things that simply do not exist. We are the only species, 70 to even up to, to, to 70,000 years ago, that could actually create a fib, create an untruthful story, create a lie. Legends, myths, gods, and religions appeared for the first time during this cognitive revolution 70,000 years ago. Many animals and human species could previously say, careful, a lion. But thanks to the cognitive revolution, Homo sapiens acquired the ability to now say, the lion is the guardian spirit of our tribe. This ability to speak about fiction is the most unique feature of the sapien language. Can you imagine? It's relatively easy to, to agree that only Homo sapiens can speak about things that don't really exist and believe six impossible things before even breakfast. You can never convince a monkey to give you a, a banana by promising him limitless bananas in the afterlife, you know, after the, in monkey heaven, for you, you know, for that matter. Um, or, or, you know, you can scare him with the threat of monkey hell and no bananas at all. Hell and no bananas. That would absolutely be hell. But why is it so important? After all, fiction can be dangerously misleading or distracting. People go to the go to the forest looking for fairies and unicorns. Would see would, would you would just assume that they would have less chance of survival than people that go looking for mushrooms and deer. Why would you go looking for fairies? But if you spend hours seeking non-existing guardian spirits, aren't you wasting precious time? Better time spent foraging, fighting, fornicating. However, fiction has enabled us to not merely imagine things, but to do so collectively. We can weave common myths, such as the biblical creation story, the dreamline myths of Aboriginal Australians, and the nationalist myths of modern states. Such myths give sapiens an unpre unprecedented ability to cooperate flexibly in large numbers. And that is really what's going to start driving this home. So if you can imagine, you know, ants and bees, they can also work together in large numbers, but they do so in a very rigid manner and only with close relatives. Wolves and chimpanzees cooperate far more flexibly than ants do, but they can also do, but they can only do these in, in small, in small numbers, uh, you know, of other individuals, you know, that they, uh, that, that they know intimately. So, that's where sapiens can cooperate in extremely flexible ways with countless numbers of strangers. That is through this mass cooperation through myth. That is why sapiens rule the world where ants eat our leftovers and chimps are locked up in zoos and, and or in research laboratories for that matter. But our, chim our chimpanzee cousins, 
Now, they usually live in small troops of several dozen individuals. They form close friendships. They hunt together. They fight shoulder to shoulder against baboons, cheetahs, and even enemy chimpanzees. <sighs> but, you know, their social structure tends to be, there's still a hierarchy to their social structures. We, we see this. They, they demonstrate it. So the dominant member, who is almost always a male, so there's always an occasion of a female that, that's in charge of the troop, but it's termed the alpha male. Other males and females exhibit their submissions to the alpha male by bowing before him while making grunting sounds, which is not unlike human subjects bowing down before a king. The alpha male strives to maintain for social harmony within his troops, but when two individuals fight, he will intervene and stop the violence. Less benevolently, he might monopolize particularly coveted foods and prevent lower-ranking males from meeting with some of the more desirable females, if you would. It's good to be the king, as I believe Carl Reiner, was it Carl Reiner? Who said that? <laughs> but when two males are contesting the alpha male position, what they usually do uh, by forming um, extensive coalitions of supporters. We see this. We just saw this, right? We, we see this in politics, both male and female from within the group. Ties between the coalition members are based on intimate daily contact. Hugging, touching, kissing, grooming, doing, doing mutual favors. Just as human excuse me, <laughs> just as human politicians on election campaigns go around shaking hands and kissing babies. So, so aspirants to the top of the position in the chimpanzee group spend much time hugging, back slapping, and kissing baby chimps. It's the same thing. The alpha male, the alpha male usually wins his position not because he is physically stronger. It's because he leads a large and stable coalition. These coalitions play a central part not only during the overt struggles for the alpha male position, but almost in all day-to-day -day activities. Members of this coalition, they spend more time together, share food, and help one another in times of trouble. So there are clear limits to the size of a group that can be formed and maintained in such a way. So in order to function, all members of this group or of this band or of this clan, they've got to know each other intimately. So I'll give you an example. So two chimpanzees who have never met each other, they've never fought together, and they've never engaged in any mutual grooming, picking bugs off of each other. You know, you, you see them do this when we were allowed to go to the zoo. But without this, they will not know whether or not they can trust each other, whether or not it would be worthwhile to help another out. And which, and which of them ranks higher than the other? Uh, they don't know each other. They, don't, they haven't established these rules yet. Under natural condition, a typical, champion can, <laughs> excuse me, a typical chimpanzee group can consist of about 20 to 50 individuals. 20 to 50 individuals. I'm calling them individuals because we're going to make a comparison to um, early humans. As the number of chimpanzees or humans in a troop increases, the social order destabilizes. Understand that. That's very important. The social order destabilizes, eventually leading to a rupture and the formation of a new troop by some of the other animals. It simply, simply breaks off. The, 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 the social capacity is only good for an X amount of number of individuals before it breaks. Only a handful of cases of zoologists have um, documented releasing groups of larger than, I'd say, like 100. But separate groups seldom cooperate and tend to compete for territory and for food. 
Researchers have documented, however, prolonged warfare between groups. And even in some cases, there has been um, documented um, gen genocidal activity in which one group have actually systematically slaughtered most of the members of the neighboring group, the neighboring band of chimpanzees. Um, I, I could remember seeing this on the news where it was, what was it? It was at, um, I think it was a couple of zookeepers, but I think it was like really small scale. And they had, I don't know, like five or 10 chimpanzees. And I remember that they wanted to make a break. They wanted to escape from this uh, makeshift prison that they were in. And they worked together to figure out how to break through the fence, get over the top when the guy came to feed them and they ate his face off. I'm probably messing up the story a little bit, but you all know the story. Um, so similar patterns probably dominated the social lives of early humans. I'm making that, making that comparison, including our, our archaic Homo sapien. So humans, just like chimps, have social instincts that enable our ancestors to form friendships and certain hierarchies and hunt as well as fight together. However, the social instincts of chimps those of humans were adapted for a small, intimate group. So when the groups grew too large, its social order destabilizes and the band would split. Even if a particular fertile valley could feed 500 archaic sapiens, there was no way that many strangers could all live together and coexist and, and share the fruits of that valley. How could they agree? Who should be the leader? Who should hunt? Who should cook? Who should mate with whom? In the wake of the cognitive revolution now, gossip helped Homo sapiens to form larger and more stable bands. But even gossip has its limits. Sociological research has shown that the maximum natural size of a group bounded by gossip is about 150 individuals. We're going to say 150 primates or 150 early humans, ancient humans. So most people can neither intimately know, not gossip effectively about, more than 150 beings. Even today, a critical threshold in human organization falls somewhere around this magic number. Below, is, below this threshold, communities, businesses, social networks, even military units can maintain, maintain themselves based mainly on intimate acquaintances and rumor-mongering, but there is no need for formal ranks titles, law books to keep order. A platoon of 30 soldiers or even a company of 100 soldiers can function well on the basis of just intimate relations with minimal formal discipline. In fact, a well-respected sergeant can become king of the company and exercise authority even over commissioned officers. A small family business can survive and flourish without a board of directors or a CEO or an accounting department for that matter. But once a threshold of 150 individuals is crossed, things can no longer work that way. You cannot run a division without thousands of soldiers the same way you could run a platoon of under 150 soldiers. Successful family businesses usually face the same crisis when they grow larger and hire more personnel from the outside. If they cannot reinvent themselves, they absolutely go bust. So... How, how, did, how did these Homo sapiens manage to cross this critical threshold? You know, we're going back to 70,000 years ago. You know, eventually founding cities comprising of tens of thousands of inhabitants and empires ruling hundreds of millions of people of all different individuals coming and going. The secret was in the appearance of fiction 
And when I say fiction, I'm doing the um, beginning quote, end quote, you know, the air quotes with the fingers in the air, the appearance of fiction. So what is this fiction? So large numbers of strangers can compete and cooperate successfully by believing in a common myth. I say that again. Large numbers of strangers can cooperate successfully by believing in a common myth. Any large-scale human cooperation, whether it's a modern state, a medieval church, an ancient city, an archaic tribe, is rooted in common myth that exists only in people's imaginations. So churches, for example, churches are rooted in a common religious myth. Two, Two Catholics who've never met can nevertheless go together on a crusade or pull funds together to build hospitals because they both believe that God was incarnated in human flesh and allowed himself to be crucified to redeem for our sins. They both believe in this together. They understand it. They're on the same mission together, right? That makes sense. We understand this. So even states, states are rooted in common national myths. Two Serbs who have never met might risk their lives to save one another because they both believe in the existence of the Serbian nation the Serbian homeland, and the Serbian flag. Judicial systems are rooted in common legal myths. Two lawyers, for example, who've never met, can nevertheless combine efforts to defend a complete stranger because they both believe in the existence of laws. Again, a little lawyer quote in there there. Justice and human rights, and money is paid out in fees. Yet none of these things exist outside the stories that people invent and tell one another. There are no gods in the universe, no nations, no money, no human rights, no laws, and no justice outside the common imagination of human beings, out of the human mind. People easily acknowledge that primitive tribes cement their social order by believing in ghosts and spirits and gathering each full moon to dance together around the campfire, along with Johnny. Now, I've got to admit, Telling effective stories is not easy. It's not an easy one. The difficulty lies not in the telling the story, but convincing everyone else to believe in it too. Much of history revolves around this question. How does one convince millions of people to believe in particular stories about gods, nations, or laws? Yet when it succeeds, it gives sapiens immense power. Huge power. Because it enables millions of strangers to cooperate and work towards common goals. Right? Let's say that again. When it succeeds, when that myth succeeds, it gives sapiens immense power because it enables millions of strangers to cooperate and work together towards a common goal. Just try to imagine how difficult it would have been to create states or churches or a legal system if you could only speak, you know, about things that really exist, such as rivers, trees, lions, bison, So, over the years, people have woven an an incredibly complex network of stories. Within this network, we have fictions not only exist, but accumulated immense power. The, the, The kinds of things that people create through this network of stories are known in academic circles as fictions, or social constructs, or Imagined realities. Again, I, I would say all those with the imagined air quotes, you know, on, on each side of my head. So, an imagined reality, it's not a lie. I lie when I say that there is a lion near the river when I know perfectly well that there's no lion there. There is nothing special about lies. Green monkeys and chimpanzees, they can lie. 
A green monkey, for example, has been observed calling, Hey, careful! There's a lion! When there was, in fact, no lion around at all. But <laughs> this alarm conveniently frightened away this fellow monkey who had just found a banana, a big, beautiful yellow banana, and leaving the liar alone to steal the prize for himself. Right? <laughs> Unlike lying, an imagined reality is something that some are some is something that everyone believes in. And as long as it's a communal belief persists, as long as this communal belief belief persists, the imagined reality exerts massive and major force in the world. So once again, I think I'm gonna draw to an end for this episode, or probably pushing that. I don't know. Yesterday I said 20 minutes. It actually turned out being almost an hour. So I'm guessing that we're probably getting close to that 45 minutes to 50 minutes or so. But um, I think we're we're starting to get an idea of where I'm I'm, I'm taking this in terms of you know you know the histories of religion and um, the you know the the, the the gods and you know the imagined realities and um, I think it's going to get really interesting as we're moving forward into episode four. But just at a quick little wrap up and conclusion, um, you know, I, I think we have an idea of how these bands made things work, how these groups of people made things work. And knowing what the boiling point was for, you know, how many individuals can survive in a band before the whole thing just breaks apart. And now think, think about moving forward. I mean, think about when you know, we start getting into the Iron Age, you know, we, we, when we start talking about, you know, these major kingdoms and, you know, and, and kings, you know, with maybe, you know, a million people, you know, a million subjects in this kingdom. How do you hold that together? You got yeah. You have to have these laws. You know, Hammurabi did it. You know, with the with the code of Hammurabi underneath the the, the imagined god Marduk and Il, right? We keep talking about that. The laws of Moses, you know, for the Israelites under the god Yahweh. So you 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 know, I think I'm starting to paint a picture, and you're getting to start to really understand um, the the, per, the you know the purpose of these imagined realities and and how the cognitive revolution may have paved the road for this. So we're going to stop it with this. And again, I look forward to our next episode and everybody stay safe, be well, and be good. All right. Thank you for listening to season one, episode three, um, the cognitive revolution. Again, um, a lot of this taken from uh, Sapiens. We already talked about it in the in the last episode, but I'm looking forward to the next one. We're going to start getting into the afterlife. Later!